Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, the scripture reading is found in the New Testament, the book of John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, And they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of God. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The word of the Lord. Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from the Psalms, specifically the 40th Psalm, and we will be reading the first 11 verses. So listen now to these words of deliverance and discipleship that we get uh, from the ancient Psalter. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Happy are those who make the Lord their trust, 
who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim and tell of them, they would be more than can be counted. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, here I am. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. See, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your saving help within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Let your steadfast love and your faithfulness keep me safe forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I did a little research this past week, not a lot, but a little. And in case you have been wondering, kids today aren't that scared of quicksand anymore. Now, Polling the kids of PS29 in Brooklyn, New York, there are other things apparently that they are worried about. Dragons uh, is number one. That tops the list. And then there are monsters under the bed. And then there are big waves at the beach that can knock you down and pull you under. Now, I distinctly remember, however, conversations on my own playground in first grade when we would warn each other, don't go over to that sandy corner of the uh, playground, because if you do, you will sink into the quicksand uh, and die. No more, apparently. Kids are over it. I think people used to be afraid of it, one of the kids said. And his classmates all nodded, but it was before we were born. (laughs) Another said, maybe it will come back one day, uh, and, and maybe it will, or maybe it was just a phase that we were going through as children, and then I would say as a society. For those of us who came of age in the 20th century, quicksand, for some reason, captured our imagination. One research group actually did uh, a study of movies Uh, a cultural study of the movies that were produced in the United States, and they tracked how often quicksand played a role in the plot of that movie. And it started appearing more and more in movies during the 1930s. And then starting around 1950, it exploded. And quicksand continued to be a very unusually common trope in, mu- in movies and in television all the way up into the 80s. And that's when it began to tip and writers and directors tended to kind of choose different plot devices. But if we think about it a little bit, it doesn't, I mean, it makes a pretty good amount of sense that maybe in the 1950s, our collective imagination would have been very receptive to images of miry bogs and the fear of knowing that the more that we struggled, the deeper we seemed to sink. 
Before the Vietnam War became known as a quagmire, some of you may remember that it was called the Quicksand War. And as our country entered into the mire of the civil rights struggle, especially on this weekend, we remember that Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and he said, now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. During that period in our history, kind of starting in the 50s and running all through the next couple of decades, our world seemed to be a place of shifting sands and perilous entanglements. And there was a pervading sense that we were sinking and that we couldn't seem to do anything about it, no matter how hard we tried. So no wonder the movies latched on to this image of struggle and panic. And I don't know about you, the scene that came to my mind first, and this is a confession I will make to you, came from the movie Blazing Saddles. (laughs) When two men were working on the Transcontinental Railroad and they inadvertently drove their handcart into a quicksand bog, and one of them said, am I wrong or is the world rising? (laughs) And the other said, I don't know, but whatever it is, I hate it. And they realize that they are in this pit that's not exactly water and not exactly earth. And they cry out for help. They couldn't do anything else. The crew bosses, you might also remember, came and they chose to save the handcart instead of pulling them out. And so they're convinced that they are going to die in that quicksand bog and that all is lost until one of them realizes that his foot has found the metal rail deep in the bog, and it is just enough support to allow them both to crawl their way up and out to safety. Now, just as an aside, I happen to notice that one of my pastoral colleagues is preaching this week on Aristotle's Neomachian ethics and how its philosophical wisdom permeates the praxis of Paul's letter to the Philippians. You get blazing saddles. But that is just the kind of intellectual rigor that I am committed to bringing you week in and week out. But in all seriousness, this metaphor is the same image that's used by the ancient psalmist. He feels trapped, trapped by circumstances. He feels caught in a metaphorical bog of mire and clay. He feels like he's sinking. And he realizes to his panic that his struggling is only making it worse. And his only recourse at the end of the day is to stop and to cry out to the Lord for help. And then simply wait for that help to come if it would. Now, anyone who has lived life long enough, I think, has experienced, at least in this metaphorical sense, the sensation that I'm talking about. You know what it is like to be trapped by circumstances. You know what it feels like to feel like you're sinking, to sense the helplessness of feeling like your attempts to fix the problem you're in only seem to be making it worse. And you're just waiting and waiting for that moment when your foot might land on some kind of rock, something firm, something that stops you from sinking. I think that's why movies have used this image so often and in such memorable ways. Everybody gets that feeling. Maybe not nine-year-olds. They don't know it, at least not yet. 
but most of us do know it. When I was a Boy Scout, I remember working on my life-saving merit badge, and one of the things we had to do was go down into the bottom of a dark lake, way down, and we had to find this cinder block, and then we had to pull it up to the surface and get it up onto the dock. And I remember the sensation of kind of going down into that deep water, pushing yourself down. It got darker and colder the deeper you went. And I kept wondering, when is my foot finally going to hit that muddy, firm ground at the bottom? I didn't like being down there. I didn't like the cold. I didn't like the dark. I wanted to get out of there. I wanted my foot to hit something. And it felt like an eternity as I was waiting to kind of hit the bottom. It's a sensation that I think is known well by people who have had a son or a daughter or some other loved one who suffers from the disease of addiction or substance abuse. They know their loved one has to hit bottom, has to hit rock bottom before things can get better. They know that that person they love needs to have their foot hit that rock, something firm, something that they can use to push themselves back up to the surface. And it seems like an eternity. Waiting for that person to find their footing as they are sinking, as things get darker, as things get colder, the longer they wait. It's the enduring power of this psalm the reason that it continues to speak to us so deeply, I think that reason is its promise that those terrifying situations of entanglement and helplessness and sinking can be overcome. Not by human struggling, but with divine deliverance. The psalm basically confirms what we've always been told about quicksand, right? That most of the time our straining and our striving only makes things worse. The more we struggle, the quicker we sink. And at some point we realize that when we stop thrashing around, we stop sinking. And that if we simply call out to God for help, that help will come. It may not come immediately, but it will come. I think that's why the word patiently sticks out like a sore thumb in that first line, right? I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. I actually relate a lot better to the version that Eugene Peterson included in his translation of this psalm called, um, in his Bible translation called The Message. The way he translated the first part of this psalm goes like this. I waited and waited and waited for God. At last he looked. Finally he listened. He lifted me out of the ditch. He pulled me from the deep mud. He stood me up on a solid rock to make sure I wouldn't slip. That's the good news of deliverance in this psalm. And even if we are forced to be patient, even if we have to wait for a while, the promise is that God does hear our cries for help. Just as God heard the cries of the Israelites in bondage in Egypt, just as God heard the prayers of Sarah and Rebekah and Rachel and Hannah who longed to bear children, God hears the cries of righteous people and God delivers them from their troubles. 
That's right out of the Psalms. The Lord is near to all who call on him, Psalm 145 says, to all who call on him in truth. But there is another part of the human condition that I think speaks just as powerfully in this Psalm, and it is another feeling that we all know too well. A lot of us in here this morning probably came first to know this Psalm much better, not in a Sunday school class, but from a rock group. In 1983, the Irish band U2 wrote a song that they called 40. And the legend has it that they were almost finished with their new album, War, but they didn't have a final song. They needed one more track. Their studio time was running out. They had nothing, and it was becoming a crisis. And the story goes that Bono, the lead singer, figured that they needed a miracle, a last-second miracle. So he opened his Bible, and flipping through the pages, he came across this psalm, the 40th psalm. And with that scripture ringing in his head, the, ones, the words that we just read a short time ago, the lyrics and the music of that last song flowed through his soul and his pen like water through a spillway. And in just hours, the final track was recorded and the album was done. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay. I will sing, sing a new song. I will sing, sing a new song. In my mind's ear, I always hear the live version where the audience is joining in on that refrain. I will sing, sing a new song. And I have a theory, and it is just a half-baked theory, mind you, but on that day when Bono was flipping through his Bible, I don't think number 40 was the only psalm he saw that day. I think he must have also seen at least snippets of some of those other psalms, psalms that ask one haunting question. It's a question that's asked at least 50 times in the Bible and no less than 15 times alone in the book of the Psalms. I think Bono drew from those other psalms to give voice to this second aspect of the human condition that we find in the psalm, one that is with us even when we feel blessed. Even when we feel strong, even when we feel supportive, even when we feel God's presence is close at hand and keeping us safe, it is the question that Bono used to finish his contemporary musical translation of Psalm 40, and many of you know it. How long? How long to sing this song? How long, how long, how long, how long to sing this song? Now, that question, which is asked over and over again in the Psalms, is the refrain the crowds at U2 concerts keep singing long after the concert is over. For a long time, U2 always closed their concerts with 40. And as they file out of the arenas, the, the people are continuing to sing it. As they get to the parking lot and unlock the doors of their cars, many of them are still singing, how long? Now, in most of the Psalms, how long is a question about waiting for God's deliverance? And that is certainly present in Psalm 40. But Psalm 40 incorporates this how long question in a little bit of a different way. And it's the sense, I would say the uneasy sense, that lingers after the divine promise has been fulfilled, after we have found the rock. I have a new song, Lord, and I am grateful for that. But how long will this song last? 
I thank you for putting my feet on the rock, Lord, but how long will this feeling of security last? Because there is still quicksand, and there will be other bogs and other mires. There is still a lot to worry about in this world. How long will I be able to feel that strong foundation under me? How long will I be able to sing this new song that you have given me? I think that's a feeling we know well. The psalmist of old said it this way, Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Let your steadfast love and faithfulness keep me safe forever. Don't leave me, Lord. Even in good times, I think there's a part of us that is prone to worry. One person coming out of the first service said, yeah, for me, I would prefer to do that as waiting for the other shoe to drop. You might always be wondering, when is that shoe going to drop? Brene Brown, for example, has often talked about the feeling she would get as a young mother when she would look at, their, at her children and she felt herself beginning to brim up with joy and gratitude. And in those moments, she always heard this little deep voice in her deep in the recesses of her mind, bubbling up. And then she would start imagining all the bad things that could happen. Every time I came close to softening into sheer joyfulness about my children and how much I love them, she said, I'd picture something terrible happening. I'd picture losing everything in a flash. And at first I thought I was crazy. Was I the only person in the world who did this? And I think you know the answer to her question. Absolutely not. This psalm proves that these thoughts are as old as humanity itself. Psychologically and emotionally, it's hard for us to get away from the quicksand, even after we've been pulled from it. We can't get away from it, at least not altogether. And the awesome thing is that this psalmist did not let that worry stop him or her. Even when, with this doubt and worry nagging at them, the psalmist is still faithfully singing about God's faithfulness and God's deliverance. When the poet was lost in the pit and his feet were finally guided to that rock, when he finally found that rock, something new was born within him. And the thing that happened to him is what the prophets talk about happening He began to find delight in God. He began to feel and perceive that God's law had been written on his heart in a new way, and he felt like he had to share it. And so despite his doubt, despite his lingering worries about what might happen, despite his realization that good times are not promised to last forever, the psalmist sang this new song far and wide to, and I use his words, the great congregation. I've not restrained my lips, Lord, he said. I've not hidden your saving help within my heart. I haven't kept it just to myself. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. This new song that was given is a powerful witness, and it's meant to be shared. A new song changed this man's understanding of discipleship. He could no longer stay quiet. He could no longer dodge responsibility. And neither can we. 
Our chances for running into literal quicksand, not good. But we too know what it is like to feel helpless and trapped. We too know how badly we want to find solid footing under our feet when we are sinking. We too know what it is like to worry that security might slip away just as quickly as it was given. But having seen and felt God's saving grace, having been assured that God's promises are indeed true, we are given a new song to sing. And we have to commit ourselves in witness and discipleship to keep singing that song. We have to commit ourselves to keep showing up and speaking out, showing up and speaking out for God, showing up and speaking out for each other, showing up and speaking out for people who are marginalized or in need, showing up and speaking out for the blessing and benefit of the world. Even when it's hard and even when we don't really feel like we have all that strong a footing beneath us, we have to sing like we know that God is always hearing us when we cry out. Sing like we know that God will bring help to us when we need it. Sing like we know that God is still working his purposes out and that we are blessed to be part of that story of deliverance and discipleship. So the question is, how long? How long? How long? Will we sing this song? Amen.